Teal Talk Radio Season 5, Episode 40. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 40 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funy-Hatton and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funy-Hatton. And today we're welcoming co-authors Pam Moran, a former superintendent, and Ira Sokol, a former CTIO. Pam and Ira co-authored Timeless Learning, How Imagination, Observation, and Zero-Based Thinking Change Schools. So Dr. Moran is recognized nationally as a leading advocate for contemporary progressive education. In an educational career spanning four decades, she has promoted shifting learning power from teachers to young people, amplifying student voice, agency, and influence. Pam spent her childhood wandering fields and swamps on her family farm and merged college ecological studies and a love of the natural world with a lifelong passion for and career in education. She's a former teacher, principal, and superintendent of schools who's recognized as a leader in the national maker education movement as an advocate for social-emotional learning, arts, and libraries, and for her belief that constructivism makes learning real for children. And joining Pam today, Ira is a former Chief Technology and Innovation Officer in Virginia. He's been recognized by the Center for Digital Education uh, for its annual award to the nation's 2017 Top 30 Technologists, Transformers, and Trailblazers. He's the author of numerous journal articles in national education and school architectural journals. Uh, During doctoral studies at Michigan State, became a leading national expert in the use of accessibility technology and universal design for learning, where he developed tool belt theory and equity lens for all learners. Um, And as you know, they both co-authored Timeless Learning, and Pam and Ira have keynoted and workshopped together at national and state conferences. And we had a little uh, uh, pre-conference, pre-podcast conversation about some of their current work. So very interesting work, and we welcome them to the show. So welcome, Pam and Ira. Hey, Randy, Lindsay, we're so grateful to be here with you today. And I have to tell you, we're coming off of a busy week spending time with architects and educators in Massachusetts who are doing and thinking about what does the next generation work that will uh, basically fuel schools of the future look like. And it has been just an exciting week. And one of the things that we are finding as we move around the country, whether it's with people like you, Randy and Lindsay, or people on the, the West Coast or the East Coast or in the Midwest, is that there is something that's really coming alive in this country, and it's been growing, I think, across the last decade, and that is a reemergence of the idea that when kids are engaged, passionate, interested, and active in their learning, that it changes the game for all kids in terms of their capability to see themselves as people whose voices matter, who have agency in their learning, and who have the potential to not just influence their own learning work, but to influence their schools or communities in the world. So we're pretty excited about the work that we've been doing together, both inside our former school district, but also working with people all over the country these days. So we're very inspired by this idea of transforming our schools too, especially for the future. How do our schools get reimagined and in ways that look very different uh, physically and structurally 
than schools do now. So if each of you, Pam and Ira, could give us just a little snippet in like what brought you to this, because, you know, certainly in your roles as as a school superintendent and CTO that, you know, there are lots of traditional people in those roles. So what drew you to this idea of transforming schools and wanting to, to really make things look different for kids? Well, Randy, you know, I think that I've been trying to transform schools almost all my life because I never liked traditional schools. I never worked well in traditional schools and I never succeeded in traditional schools. And one of the key lessons I learned early on when I was in a a brilliant alternative high school in New York that had been designed by a local teacher named Alan Shapiro and uh, Neil Postman and Charlie Weingartner from um, who wrote the book Teaching is a Subversive Activity back at the end of the 1960s. And I learned that what would ha- what was possible when you gave students a chance at autonomy, at exercising their voice, at truly learning responsibilities, um, and learning to use their passions to explore their world. And I, I was reflecting on this just yesterday as a former classmate of mine in that alternative school. And you have to realize that if you're an alternative high school, it's not because you've been doing really well in school up to that point. Uh, but I was, as I was reading one of my former classmates op-eds in the New York Times and thinking about how, despite having no rules, we didn't even have attendance requirements, um, we, we just had projects and things that we worked on, but we managed to learn and learn really deeply and learn well. And we managed to succeed in life despite maybe not being um, aimed that way when we were entering ninth grade. So I think for me, this has been a personal mission. I've, I've worked with at-risk children in all sorts of situations for, for many, many years. Um, there has to be something better than the structure that was really created to produce compliant children who didn't think. Um, And that's what our educational design, you know, from the 1840s through the 20th century was all about. How about you, Pam? Well, I think that, you know, Ira and I had very different trajectories early on as you know, as Lindsay described a little bit, I grew up in, in the low country of South Carolina on a farm and spent a lot of time outdoors and uh, went to a very small rural school in, in the county where I lived. But one of the things that, that I discovered pretty early on is I was actually a, the kind of the opposite of Ira in terms of my, my trajectory as a student. I was a very good student and, you know, loved, loved learning, loved reading. Uh, loved science and ended up majoring in science in college. I actually thought I would be chasing snakes around in the Everglades <laughs> when I was uh, close to, to graduating from college, but ended up instead chasing a man to the University of Virginia. And he left and I stayed as a uh, teacher in a, uh, a model middle school, interestingly enough. And it really um, basically turned upside down a lot of the paradigms that I had coming out of school in terms of what school could be. And it's, so it was kind of an interesting experience because it was a school that was really built around the inquiry, 
hands-on learning, a real focus on Bloom's taxonomy and getting kids to high levels of Bloom's and the work that they were doing, as well as in the assessments that we developed. It also was an open, flexible space school where everything was being built around work that we did in teams. And so, you know, it was a, a very different experience than I'd had as either a learner in college or as a young student. But I think that one of the things I learned as a young teacher is that even in the best of situations, that you have students who are struggling to really find their place as learners. And that even though, you know, we were an inquiry school, the idea of having multiple pathways, multiple different perspectives on how kids get to learn, and then also just the dominant uh, world of print in uh, paper at that time, um, as it has existed literally up until uh, really moving into the 21st century, really did leave some kids um, with no seats at the table. Mm -hmm. And so there are a couple of things that I think have really driven a lot of the work that Ira and I've done together with lots of educators in the system where we worked, because, you know, as I've learned in life that um, having singular passion can really propel you towards things that you really love to do. But when you can build and grow from the shared passion that educators bring together in the work they do, all of a sudden you really change the way that, that communities start to work. What we really discovered as we began to focus on redesigning space, redesigning curriculum, the way we thought about assessment, the way we thought about pedagogy, is that the more that we worked on creating multiple pathways for kids, whether it was at the elementary, middle, or high school level, the more kids that we discovered in our schools who potentially would have been failing, potential dropouts, or kids that were just disenchanted. And I have to tell you, that's not just about kids that we think of as the traditional kids heading towards failure in schools. But I also realized that I had spent, even as a student in school many decades ago, a lot of time doing time, listening to teachers, doodling in my notebooks. I just happened to be fortunate to have the capabilities to be pretty compliant most of the time and to be somebody that could really process a lot of content and be able to, to get the A. But I also realized that I didn't have a lot of uh, opportunities to really explore and discover my own interest and passions. As we started to do that when I was a superintendent, all of a sudden we started finding kids everywhere from five-year-olds to 17 and 18-year-olds who had amazing capabilities that when you turn them loose in ways that we had never ever done before in schools, you finally realized that there are a lot of kids out there who really check their creativity at the schoolhouse door, who um, find themselves um, going through the motions of school, um, in some cases uh, more compliantly and in some cases not. But when you start to unleash kids' passion and interest and creativity, all of a sudden you realize that we are losing a lot of kids, even kids that do really well in school, from being able to really realize their full potential. You know, we have a lot of examples of that. And it's everything from um, what we found as we turned our summer school programs and elementary schools more towards maker environments, where the focus was not on kids coming in to double down on remediation, but to actually really have rich um, 
interesting learning experiences where there was an integration of uh, hands-on making with the content work that they were, were trying to accomplish in the summer through the teachers, through our coder dojos, through um, bringing back a lot of the things that we had lost in the 70s and 80s, such as shops that became, in this version, in this century, mechatronics labs, not just traditional um, uh, tools that, that were uh, more aligned with what shop was like in the 1970s and 80s. But what happens when you start to bring laser cutters and 3D printers and CNC routers and tools in so that kids are really developing skill sets that um, are real transportable, transferable skills that go far beyond just learning how to technically use tools. And so as we did that work together, what we found is that we were really expanding the bandwidth of possibilities for kids but also creating situations where teachers started to really see kids very differently um, in the work that they were doing. I, I probably went way too far on that um, well, theoretically. Maybe you can add some of the personal story to it in terms of what you saw happening boots on the ground. And, and that's a really great transition into our next question. And maybe Ira... This is this leads into that, but in the in the beginning of your text, your chapter, you paint a picture of this um, importance of all means all, and you're talking about leaders thinking differently about equity and opportunity, and why is that important, and how does that connect to this story? Well, you know, I think that my goal, you know, since I came into the field of education, has not been to change. To swap out one group's success for another, uh, I, you know, that's never been my purpose. I, I could, you know, and I thought of this in the early part of this century of saying, you know, wow, this is the time for all of us who are audio learners and all of us who have ADHD. We're finally have reached the moment when, when the world is ours. But mm. that's not really the goal. The goal was to get to, you know, as Pam always said, all means all. And there are so many routes to success. So, you know, if we built a music studio in in a high school library on a small bed of what was initially about $6,000, and we had students walk into those spaces as one of the... Um, Stories in the book tells a young man named Coleon who was coming out of incarceration in New York. And we could give him a safe place to, sh to show his talents off. And then we could let him use those talents as his path into learning the traditional sort of subject matter that, that schools are required to uh, help kids get through that we could turn somebody who in 99 chances out of 100 would have been a high school dropout and changed him into a high school graduate who could succeed. And I'm not talking about the magic stories mm -hmm. about somebody who ends up in Harvard. I'm talking about somebody who ends up living a decent life, mm -hmm. you know, for himself. You know, if we could take a, a young man who had failed almost every class he took in sixth grade and had all sorts of problems just staying in class and give him an opportunity 
to show what he could do around a problem. He understood, he perceived <coughs> his capture in Little League and baseball. And and watch him develop an amazing sort of, you know, high-tech um, product that would help that, that would help pitchers know when they were throwing strikes or not. Um, you know, we could turn a young man who was, you know, definitely on his way to being a high school dropout into someone who would keep participating in education. I always point out that the trick is, you know, a young man like that, even at the end, you know, even after we fully engaged him, it wasn't like we converted him into someone who could do well sitting in a classroom. But that shouldn't be his problem. That should be our mm -hmm. problem, you know, to help move past. You know, and if we could find a, a young woman who was, you know, so bored with school that she, you know, faked being sick every afternoon for a whole year and give her a chance to be the lead project manager on building a tiny house and have her decide the construction management was, a, was something she had discovered that now seemed like where she wanted to go in life. And she was at school 10 hours a day, every day, working on things. You know, we, we take children who are traditionally filtered out of the route to success and we put them on their path, not our path. Our goal has never been to put children onto either Pam's path or my path or any teacher's mm -hmm. path but onto their own path for success. So later in the book, you talk about uh, this idea of liberating adults and learners. I think it's chapter three, and that sounds like a real leadership kind of phrase. So uh, can you share, Pam, like, what do you mean by that? Well, we felt like that, you know, that, that children and educators have been held in thrall in this country. And I think it started uh, with the nation at risk, giving lift to the idea that you know, that we needed to double down on schools in this country and that um, we, we weren't doing a good job and that people from outside needed to come in and tell us what to do and help us learn to manage our work by objective and that we needed to build in accountability at literally almost every step that a teacher or a child took in schools with very narrowly filtered standards that could be easily, as Tony Wagner says, easily and cheaply assessed using multiple choice. And I think that what that did was that it sucked a lot of the passion out of our schools from both learners and teachers, and that we just found ourselves in a place where we were more narrowly filtering what the opportunities would be for kids and who had access to those. And that what we really see the work that we did as uh, helping along with a lot of other educators in the country, because I think there are a number of people that started working on this in the probably the post um, uh, NCLB era to say, what is it that really is the added value of what we do with our kids that goes well beyond just what we've always assumed are the basics of school? How do we really change those basics to something that looks more like what you see emerging in, in the concept of profiles of the graduate all mm -hmm. over the country? And that is something that's a much deeper learning, a more um, interesting learning, a more um, shared opportunity that's not just developing the skill sets and competencies that kids need to go to work after graduation, 
but really to be able to live healthy, functional lives in their homes and their fam with families, with uh, their community and how they help to serve their community and how they really become members of a democratic society where they are really seeing themselves as being able to have influence to create better situations for themselves in their own homes, but also for other people. And so, you know, as we started to think about how do we liberate our educators from the thrall of No Child Left Behind and our children from this very onerous set of standards that sorted and selected kids more than anything else that we've ever done in education, how is it that we create these places where kids don't just survive, but they thrive, they're happy, that they find joy in the work they're doing, that they see themselves as really accomplishing things that are much bigger than just learning to read or to memorize their uh, times tables or to be able to recall, you know, what was the reconstruction era about or whatever it is that we said was important for kids to learn and could be easily demonstrated on tests, whether kids were learning it or not. What we said is we've got to liberate our kids from that and really go after something that, that moves them mm -hmm. in ways that they find lifelong learning as something that they want to continue doing and not stop as soon as they walk out of their schools. Yeah. And Pam, yes. Pam, I think that, you know, the, one of the keys was that as Pam always said, you had to get to yes at the start and, and that this is at the heart of this. So it doesn't matter if it's fourth and fifth graders saying, you know, what we really want to do is learn to shoot drone video um, and that we're going to, you know, learn to fly drones really well and learn to shoot drones. You know, well, how do we support that through their teachers or if the teacher who comes and says, as you know, it's, it's one of the stories I often tell, says to me, you need to uh, buy me 20,000 bees for one of our high schools. Um, and you know, you know, so my first response literally was 20,000 bees. What could possibly go wrong with that? But <laughs> the, the, the nature of this was that they wanted to reimagine, um, environmental science studies around, you know, something that was important to kids on a, in a rural high school, which was, you know, bee populations and, survival of that and this turned into an amazing technical project that changed environmental science teaching changed math teaching changed everything we found that we could place small bets on teachers that would say to them your crazy creative idea seems worth us investing in and and that was a primary way that we started to free up the imaginations of teachers who for too long had been told to follow the pacing guide and that we were going to do the same thing for every child every day. And that allowed, you know, what we discovered was when we, when we moved to that, we allowed, we saw teachers just explode with ideas. So thinking about the ideas that you shared and also what Pam shared, and in order to do that, we need to break down walls and open spaces for learning um, to create these opportunities for our learners. Can you talk a little bit about that, Ira? You know, I, you know, I have this strange background that includes architecture school and a, and a number of other things. And, 
you know, spaces matter. I mean, everything matters. Pedagogy matters and, and technologies matter. Uh, you know, policies matter. All these things matter. But spaces are really critical. And one of the things when I was working on my, in my doctoral program, I ended up writing my dissertation around the history of education because I got to a point where I just said, I don't understand if this stuff hasn't been working for 180 years, why are we still doing it every day? And one of the things that I ran across as I studied the history was our classrooms and our schools were designed for purposes we would find horrific today. You know, um, they were designed actually to drive out cultural confidence and cultural acceptance to drive out differences among children and literally to filter out 80% of the kids and turn them into failures who could then do manual labor. Mm -hmm. We don't believe in any of that today, but we still exist in the spaces, in the time signatures, um, in the teaching methods that were, that were developed for, for those things. So, you know, spaces are difficult. Not many people get to build new schools all the time, but That's even true. within the context of any classroom, you can, you know, dramatically change things to allow students to be not just, you know, comfortable and able to focus on what they want to focus on, but also teach them, you know, important social values and allow contagious creativity to occur. So it you know, began with, you know, what I always say is the first step is the teacher would say to me, my room's really crowded. I say, it won't be if you throw the desks and chairs out, you know, suddenly you'll have a lot of room. Kids will sprawl on the floor. They'll be a lot more comfortable and a lot of different things will happen. And that proved true everywhere. Wherever we could, we tried to build classrooms that were open that were visible from the hallways. We don't want to hide learning behind a whole bunch of, you know, covered up windows. Um, we wanted natural light to flow into spaces. When we did get to build or did get to significantly renovate, we rethought everything. So, you know, one of the things we ended up doing was building um, multi-age spaces in elementary schools that were sometimes two grades, sometimes sixth grades, um, all learning together in big spaces with kitchens at the middle of them, you know, creating what we think of as natural learning environments, how humans actually learn. They learn together. They learn from their aspirational peers better than they learn from adults. And they learn by engaging their hands, you know, along with their hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And who can argue with that? So you both have a lot of expertise and you've done a lot of learning about these topics. What we'd like to ask for you to do next is share um, some additional resources with our listeners. So we have a few quick lightning round questions and okay. uh, we're ready to hear some of your experts. So these are a short response, but uh, hopefully we can find some resources on the people you share and then we'll link them in the show notes. All right. So who is one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about this idea of school transformation and some of the ideas that you've shared? I always think that if, you know, there are a couple of very old books that I think people should go back to. Um, 
you know, and that's why we use the phrase timeless learning is we think this is human and timeless. So I encourage everybody to go back and read John Holt's How Children Learn. Um, you know, it's from a long, long time ago, you know, 1960, but he is brilliant at, at laying out the concept that children don't see themselves as learners. They see themselves as doing, and we have to work within that context. The other book I'd recommend to everyone is, you know, Postman and Weingartner's Teaching as a Subversive Activity. It is still the manual to liberating children and their learning. All right. For me, yeah, for me, I would add one that's a little bit older and one that's newer. Um, I really loved Roland Barthes and Deborah Meyer's book, Learning by Heart. And I think that it's one that that every educator should have um, on their reading list if it's not one that they've um, already read, because it really delves into and really set the stage for me to understand the power of returning autonomy to educators inside our schools to exercise their creativity and their capability from an efficacy standpoint to really think about how do we create as many different ways for kids to learn as possible. And, you know, he tells the story of uh, seeing a bunch of kids graduate from high school and start a bonfire of their books. And when he talked to the kids and asked them, why are you doing this? He thought they were gonna be kids that actually hated school. And it turned out they were kids that, who had actually done pretty well in school. And he said, what, a, what an indictment of what we do inside our schools if we've got children who actually represent yeah. the strongest of, of young people finishing school, that they would be burning their books. <laughs> the other one that I've read about, and, it, and it's kind of a, a, a relationship book to education that I think is new. And Ira, you can chime in on this, but it's a book called Into the Magic Shop. And it's written by a neurosurgeon by the name of Dr. James Doty. And he talks about his experiences as a child living in trauma and the impact that that had on him as he moved from really young uh, as a young student in school to high school and then figuring out how to literally get himself to college with very little help from from his uh, um, high school and then eventually into medical school and eventually became a neurosurgeon but he really builds um, I think a compelling story of how trauma and stress impact children's lives and the parts that we don't see that we sometimes, um, because of the fact that we tend to filter how our actions and behaviors can put a kid who has incredible capability into a place of just looking like a kid who's really a big screw up in school. And um, he, he puts it into perspective through his work as somebody, one who has really studied brain science, as well as the impact that one adult had on his life who had nothing to do with school, but taught him how to develop resilience that helped him get to the place where he is today, a clinical faculty member at Stanford University. I wouldn't describe him as a magic child. I would describe him as someone who happened to really learn something that we could all teach kids. And that is how to really build resilience. And it's not from getting more homework or getting more um, 
uh, punishment in schools, but how to really develop a capability to understand how your brain works and what you can do to support up being a child who has resilience in the face of deep stress. So that would be the other one, Into the Magic Shop. Um, and of course, on the in the PLN, Ira, we could go on forever about people that we think inform up the work. We certainly would encourage people to follow our other co-author, Chad Ratliff at CS Ratliff on Twitter, because he's still working inside the system and taking on some new and really interesting work, particularly around how does the Mastery Transcript uh, Consortium, of which he's one public school that's one of the few that's affiliated with that, is really taking on the idea that the traditional transcript needs to change because we can do better by our kids in terms of being able to share who they are and what they're capable of doing through a very different model than the traditional transcript. Well, thank you so much for sharing some of those ideas and we'll link those books and resources in the show notes. Yeah, some interesting uh, new books there that are I'm excited to check out. Check out and of yeah. course some folks there too. All right, so to wrap up our conversation quickly, what's next for you, Pam and Ira? What are you working on that you like to share with our audience? <laughs> Yeah, Ira. Oh, you know we we have joined together to um, to continue our work. We've been working together for for a decade, and we think we can help a, a whole range of other kinds of schools that are that are ready to change and are struggling with the how or the how to get started. Um, and so we've been working with school systems and school leaders around the country. Um, we've also been working heavily with architects to get them to understand both the full impact of spaces, but also how to better communicate with schools when schools become their clients. Um, so what, you know, what, how do you create the physical structure that gives you the opportunities to move forward? Or how do you, choose the right technology system and, and policies that allow you to move forward in, into this next century. And it's, it's been fascinating because we're meeting wonderful people all over the place. Hmm. That is so true. I would say that, that my big fascination right now is with um, the idea of how networks really promote up support for each other. And, you know, there's some fabulous networks out there, um, whether it's uh, the folks that, that are working with uh, uh, the Alliance for, for um, Excellent Education and the Future Ready Movement, whether it's the folks that are working with um, uh, organizations such as uh, Digital Promise and many others that are out there. But one of the things that I notice is that those organizations tend to have very specific areas of focus that overlap each other in a lot of ways. I think that to build a national movement for change, that we have to really create a network of networks. And, and the person that got me started thinking about that was really Tom Vander Ark in his latest work mm -hmm. on where, you know, sort of uh, smarter together. And um, one of the things that I think about is how is it that we start to bring our networks together in Virginia right now, I'm working as an executive director of a group called the Virginia Cons uh, School Consortium for Learning. And we've partnered with the Department of Education, James Madison University, Jobs for the Future, and Ted Dinnersmith 
and have created a network of innovation in Virginia in which we have 31 school divisions that have lead innovation teams that are going to meet together for a year and work on locally controlled innovation work, but to build a shared network in which they're able to exchange ideas, exchange resources, work together on similar projects, um, get ideas from each other. And eventually what we will have is a network in Virginia that's a virtual platform that will allow us to share the resources of lead innovation teams and how they are affecting change in their local districts. Our goal is to have three cohorts over the next three years and eventually to have every school division in Virginia with a lead innovation team that's creating grassroots change that informs the work of the state, of the Commonwealth, and of each other, and that we are uh, uh, in a, a system where we believe that we will be better together. And so that's what I'm really after, is how do we elevate the national conversation to build a movement? Ira and I are also working on something that we are going to start this summer, which we think is pretty exciting, and that is to think about the concept of campfires. How is it that we start to build campfires across the country where people gather to tell their stories and to create almost centers of regional storytelling that allow people to be able to support up each other and say, what we're doing is working and we believe that you can join with us and become part of the, uh, the national movement to uh, really move us towards the learning for the future that our kids need. Because when you think about it, Ira, what is it you say about the five-year-olds today? The five-year-olds today are going to live their lives well into uh, the 22nd mm -hmm. century. This is, you know, we can't be using a 1905 model um, at this point. It's just a different world. It's a great way to think yeah. about that and a great way to wrap this up. Yeah, Thank you so much to both of you. Um, oh, we're delighted. And, and Randy, I just have to give you that shout out that I always do and say, that you're one of those those superintendents who's out there who's helping to build this movement and that we really appreciate the opportunity to be with you today but also to know that that you know through you that we're all together really building this national conversation about what comes next and how do we make it happen together so thank you well that's kind thank it's you. a team effort on this end here very, too with very Lynn. nice Absolutely. thanks great way to end the conversation it's great to see both of you today thank you so much thank you so thank you so much for joining us, Pam and Ira. To learn more about Pam and Ira's work, we have some links in the show notes. Um, and the, the books that were mentioned, even Ira's blog, and a link to the book that they have co-authored. Wonderful. Thank you. Each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation. This episode's question, what did you learn today to help you stoke your fire for school transformation? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for Season 5, Episode 40. That's all for this episode. We'll be back soon with more conversations featuring other innovative thought leaders. Thanks again, Pam and Ira. Thanks, Pam and Ira. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.